Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and uh, it is great to be with you. Uh, it's great to uh, have you with us as we uh, come to God's Word, and um, if, you know, maybe this is your first time uh, being in church in a long time. Uh, maybe you grew up in the church and you've kind of strayed away and you're returning, or maybe uh, you've uh, never been in church, but you're considering the claims of Christ, or maybe you've been uh, hearing the gospel from your earliest of days, uh, regardless of uh, what you might be bringing. We are glad that you are here because uh, we all need Jesus, and uh, that's what the book of Philippians has been uh, showing us, is our need for Christ, and how Christ is the one that uh, brings the salvation that we are in need of. And, and so we look again this morning at Philippians 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16 this morning, and in just a minute, the passage will be projected on the screens in front of you. But we're looking at Philippians 3. Now, as we're turning there, uh, I do have a question that I'd love for you to consider, take up, to think about. Maybe we were, if we were having lunch or having coffee, we are across the table from one another. How would you answer the question, uh, what is maturity? What does maturity look like? What does a mature person think about? It's a worthwhile question to take up because the truth is, is that we all know that we are not to remain immature, right? I've never met a parent who brags and boasts about how immature their child is, <laughs> right? Like, I have the most immature people in my life. Like, y'all, you know, we're, you know, thank you. I'm, I'm this great parent, right? No one does that. No one does that because we know we're not called to be immature. We're called to mature, right? We're called to put off childish ways, right? We can be childlike. Childlike is actually something that's good, Right? The, the wonder, the amazement, the, the simple faith that's often exuding children, that's actually something that adults could learn from at times. Childlikeness is good, but childishness, well, we want to put that aside. We want to grow in maturity, and we know this in our physical lives, we know this in our relational lives, but it's also true of our spiritual lives. In fact, the Apostle Paul in verse 15 of our passage says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Well, in what ways? Well, the Apostle Paul is about to tell us. He's about to tell us what a mature mind is to think about, what a mature Christian life is to look like. What are we to think? How are we to live? What does a mature mind think of? Well, Philippians 3, beginning in verse 10, tells us. Paul writes, that I may know him, that is Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, for one, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we simply ask that you would grow our love for you and our love for neighbor. 
that you would grow in us a desire to follow you and to mature after your very likeness. And so we pray that you would do a good work this morning, that you would do it in us and through us, that you would be with the one who preaches and that you'd be with all those who listen so that what we do this morning would give you glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I have to tell you, um, I hate running. I hate it. Can't stand running. I'm actually very jealous of those of you who like to run. Like, the idea of running is, is very romantic to me. It's really attractive, just kind of being out on your own, hearing your feet pounding against the pavement, the in and out of your lungs, right? Just being able to kind of zone out from all the world and just, just run. Like, I, th- it's a very romantic idea, and it's also something that I despise. <laughs> Even when I was running three, four, five days a week, and I was like logging eight, nine, ten mile runs, I hated it. I was only doing it for pure exercise. I hate to run, but I like running with my kids. And over the last number of years, Cole and I have started doing 5Ks together, and it's not because I initiated this. It's not because I woke up and said, you know, running sounds like fun, Cole. Let's go do it. It's because he wanted to do it, and so we started doing these 5Ks. And every fall, come November, we know on Thanksgiving morning before we fill our bellies with turkey, we're going to work off some calories and run the drumstick dash. And a few weeks later, in the cold and in the sleet and with snow even coming down, we're going to run the jingle bell run. We just know this is going to happen. And when we start running, I know what to expect. The first mile, mile and a half, I'm going to set the pace, and I'm going to be asking cold questions like, are we going fast enough? Are we going too fast? Do we need to pick it up or slow it down? Right? I'll start pointing things out to him like, there's mile one, bub. We're three, you know, a third of the way done. There's the halfway point, two miles. We're almost there. But about the two-mile mark, Cole starts to actually get a little bored, and he needs some goals to set before him, so, so I start picking off people. I'll say to him, okay, you see that guy with the blue coat? Let's catch him. And so we take off and we catch him. You see that lady with the red hat? Like, let's pass her. And so we go shoot him by her, right? He needs these little bits of goals. And, and after a number of people that we've passed, inevitably Cole's going to ask me something. He's gonna, I'm going to stop talking and he's going to start. And what he's going to ask me is this. Can I go now? Is it time? Now, Dad? And, and he always asks too early, so I have to tell him, no, 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 not yet, bub, not yet. Just hold on, just wait a little bit more. But then we come around the bend, and there it is, right in front of us. What we've been waiting for, what we've been looking to see, the finish line. And as soon as we see that goal, I say to Cole, go. And off he goes. And I have, I have no problem saying that my 10-year-old leaves me in the dust. <laughs> he goes sprinting ahead, and he goes flying towards the finish line, and he knows not to look back at me. He knows not to check to see if I can keep up with him. He just keeps going and going with the finish line ahead of him. And at the end, inevitably, I always am like, Bubba, that was amazing, so fast. And he's like, Dad, I can't feel my legs, but it was so great, right? He just pushes through. He pushes on. Somewhere he finds energy that he's been saving to take off. When he sees that finish and when the goal is in sight, he pushes on. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do. 
Not in a 5K, not in the Jingle Bell Run, not on the drumstick dash, but in the race of the Christian faith. That we are to push on to the goal. That's what Paul says in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That we push on to the goal. But what is the goal? The goal that Paul references in verse 14, it's described in verses 10 through 11. That's where Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, that is the goal of the Christian faith, that we are to be focused on knowing Christ, sharing in his sufferings, and attaining the resurrection of the dead. That that is what the finish line is. But notice what Paul says about this goal, the pursuit of it. In verses 12 and 13, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So you see what he's saying about it? The finish is still in the future. That Paul hasn't acquired the prize yet. And neither have we. Now, I, I know it's easy for us to start to think about our own lives and to think that, you know, if, if I just read one more book, if I just listened to one more sermon, if, if I uh, become a leader in the church, then I will have arrived. Then I will have figured all this stuff out. Then I will have re received whatever prize it was that I was pursuing. I mean, I, I've thought that. I became a Christian when I was 21, a month after my 21st birthday, actually. And I remember thinking shortly after I became a Christian, you know what, when I am 30, I think I'm going to have a lot of these questions solved. <laughs> and then when I was 30, I was like, you know, another decade would be really helpful. <laughs> and now I'm in my 40s, and, and I just know that every 5, 10 years, I'm going to be thinking the same thing, right? I need a little more time. Right? I, I still haven't arrived. And, and when I'm 80 and 90, I still will not have arrived. And yet we do that, don't we? I mean, we think that a little bit of time and a little bit of effort and we'll have finally made it. But that's not what Paul says, is it? Paul says, I'm not perfect. I haven't obtained it. I haven't made it my own. And so though we know what the goal is, to know Christ, to share in his sufferings, to attain the resurrection of the dead, though we know what the goal is, we have to acknowledge that we have not arrived there yet. That we will not experience the fullness of knowing Jesus in this life. Now we know it in part, absolutely. But we won't know it fully yet. So what do we do with that? I mean, at this point, it'd be easy for us to go, well, then I'm just going to kind of sit out the rest of the race. I'll let people keep running by. You know, I'll kind of see the, the end, but, but I, I'm just not going to run anymore because I can't attain it. I'm not going to get there. So, so what's the point, right? That we can start to think that in our minds, but, but that's not what we're called to do. Though we have not attained it yet, Paul calls us to press on. You see, that's what he says in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see this singular focus that Paul has for his life, that he's straining forward, he's pressing on. These verses remind me of Hebrews chapter 12. You remember in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews says that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see what we do? We press on. We lay aside everything that would hinder us. I love this passage in Hebrews 12. And when you couple it with Philippians 3, you you have this image of a runner, right? Of someone in the midst of a race and and anyone who might get in their way, anyone who might prevent them from crossing the line, they're pushing them aside. They're laying it aside. Anything that might slow them down, they run right by. That is the image that we should have about our life in Christ. That we lay aside our sin. That we put aside the things that slow us down. That we lay aside the things that inhibit us so that we press on to the prize. And as we do this, it means we're going to have to forget what lies behind. That's what Paul said in verse 13. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. We forget what lies behind. You know, in uh, the spring of 1954, there were only two people in the history of the world who had ever run the uh, the four-minute mile. In the spring of 1954, those two men, uh, Roger Bannister and John Landy, they raced against one another in the British Empire and Commonwealth Games in Vancouver, British Columbia. That year, earlier that year, uh, Bannister had broken the four-minute mile. That, that like holy grail of mile running, that number that people thought maybe could never be broken, he ran sub four minutes, which, right, like that is flying. That is fast. I know that's like Andrew Hanko's speed, but like that's not my speed, right? That is flying less than four minutes. And then a couple months later, John Landy broke that record. And so now these two men, the fastest milers in the history of the world at the time, were facing off against one another. And as the gun went off, Landy took off. And he built this huge lead. Into the third lap, he was up by 10 yards. Right? The race was over, but then Bannister kicked it in. He kicked it up, and he started to pick up his pace, and he started chasing down Landy. And they say that the stadium exploded with excitement because the people, they were watching a race that they thought was going to be, you know, Landy just destroying him, turn into a legitimate race. And as they were coming around the final bend, heading towards the finish line, because it was so loud, Landy couldn't hear where Bannister was. He couldn't hear his feet. He couldn't hear his breathing. And so as they came around the last bend, Landy took a look behind him over his left shoulder. And as he did so, Bannister passed him on the right. And Bannister won by less than one second. And after the race, both Bannister and Landy said and acknowledged that had Landy not turned over and looked to see where Bannister was behind him, Landy certainly would have won the race. He looked back and took his eyes off the finish. 
You see, what inhibits us from pressing on, what prevents us from straining forward, is looking back. We look back and we become paralyzed by past failures. Right? We look back and we start to look upon our mistakes, upon our sin, and we can be overwhelmed by our guilt and we dwell in a mire of past sin. Right? And, and listen, I'm, I'm not saying that we, we pretend like we never sinned. That, that we forget, forgetting means like, like nothing ever happened before today. That's not what I'm saying. But, but it's easy instead for us to look back and not just forget, but to look back and dwell on. And in some way, we think that we're being spiritual because we're taking our sins seriously. But in reality, we are minimizing the power of the gospel. When we dwell on it, when we sit in it, when we won't let it go, we are minimizing the power of the gospel. We're not believing that God's grace is greater than our sin. And so we, we forget. We don't look back and become paralyzed by past failures, but we also don't look back and become complacent by past achievements. Looking at the things we've done, finding value in our works, our worth, our success in these things, right? Boasting and resting and trusting what we've done. Like I've taught Sunday school. I volunteered in nursery. I gave money. I've already pressed on. No, we don't do that either. We don't become complacent with our past achievements. I mean, we've already heard what the Apostle Paul says about past achievements, haven't we? Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, an Israelite, a Pharisee, and we know even beyond that, he was a church planter and a missionary and a writer of Holy Scripture. And what does he say about all of his success? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. So I don't know what you're inclined to look back to. Maybe it's your sin and you become paralyzed. Or maybe it's your success and you become complacent, but but either way, whichever it is, friends, let us forget what lies behind. Let us fix our eyes on the goal, on the finish line. Let us not look back, but instead let us look towards the goal and press on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We press on, and as we press on, we hold on. That's what the Apostle Paul says in verse 16. Let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, verse 16 can be a little confusing for us because Paul has just been talking about pressing on, straining forward and taking hold, but now he says, I've already taken hold, right? He, he says, hold true to what you have already attained. So, so which is it? Is it we take hold of or we already have hold of it? Well, what's the answer? Well, the answer is yes, right? It's actually both. It's both. In fact, verse 16 can be translated, let us live up to what we have already attained. And in so what Paul is saying is, let us live out of the reality of who we already are. And who are we? Well, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's who we are. We are already those who are owned by the Lord. 
Christ has made us his own. And so what the Apostle Paul is presenting us with is that beautiful doctrine. If you've been around the church, you've heard a number of times, right? The already and the not yet. We are already Christ's. He has made us his own and we strive forward to make him our own. Right? It's already true and yet we keep pursuing that truth. Right? The scriptures tell us we have already been crucified with Christ, and yet we strive forward to share in his sufferings. The scriptures tell us we have already been resurrected with Christ, but we push on obtaining the resurrection of the dead. The scriptures tell us we already know Christ, and we press on knowing him all the more. We are those who belong to Christ, He has seized us, taken hold of us. That's what that word means, that language, made me his own. It's getting at this idea of to be caught, to be seized, to be arrested. That's what Christ has done to us. He has caught us. And when we think that it's the Apostle Paul who's writing this, it makes sense that he would use this sort of language. I mean, when we remember his conversion, you remember in Acts chapter 9, Paul, who was then Saul, was threatening and persecuting the church. And he was doing it with the approval of the the Jewish leaders. And with their approval, he went to Damascus because persecuting the church in Jerusalem wasn't enough. So he's on the Damascus road and he's looking for more followers of Christ so he can bind them and return them to Jerusalem to stand trial. And while on that road, what happened? Paul was seized by Christ. A bright light from heaven blinded him, and a voice called out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then the voice said again, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And we know what happened. And Ananias was sent to Saul, and he explained who Jesus was, and Saul believed and trusted in Christ that the one who had been persecuting the church had been seized and caught by the Christ. Saul became Paul. And this change that took place could only be accounted for by Christ taking hold of him. And that's what he's done for us. Now, maybe not in such a dramatic way, right? I had ventured to say that none of us have been blinded by a light from heaven or heard a voice from heaven calling out to us. But I know some of your stories and I know, I know what you have shared with me about what you were like before you became a Christian. And the radical change that has taken place that can only be described as the Lord taking hold of you. But I know that there are others in our midst who, who don't have a dramatic telling of conversion. Right? You, you can't remember a day when you have not believed. You, you grew up in a believing home and you heard the gospel from your earliest days and you cannot remember not trusting in Jesus. Whether that is your story or the story of the dramatic conversion is your story, the same thing is true of both that Christ has taken hold of us. He has seized me and you. And that is the truth that we hold on to. That is the truth that we hold on to, that we are not the world, we are not even our own, but we are Christ's. We are his because of what he did for us. 
He suffered in our stead. He died in our place. He took our transgression on himself and made us his own. And so when we know this, friends, how can we not press on? How can we not forget what lies behind? How can we not strain forward to what lies ahead? And when we hold on to who we are, we're going to press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. That we have not arrived, but that we belong to the Lord. And we hold on to that truth. And we press on to the goal because Christ has made us his own. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves, but that you sent your Son who lived and died and rose again and made us his own so that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul and heart and mind and everything that we say and do, we belong to you. And so we pray that as those who belong to you, as those who are trusting in you, that you would help us to hold on to that truth, that we would press on to the goal, and we would fix our eyes on the finish of knowing Christ, of sharing in his suffering, of obtaining the resurrection of the dead. Help us to pursue and to push on so that in every way we would honor you. And we pray this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.